Afternoon, everyone. My name is Kamal. I'm part of the ministry team here, and it's my privilege to be bringing us the Word of God from Isaiah chapter 5. So if I could invite you all to grab your Bibles again and open up to Isaiah chapter 5. That's page 679. 679. Isaiah chapter 5, we won't read it again, let me pray and let's get into it. Thanks Father God for your scriptures, your word written. Thank you for your son, your word made flesh. Please Father, we ask you as our heavenly farmer that you would work in us, that you would make us fruitful for you. Amen. In our day-to-day -day lives, we want to make a difference. We want to get some sort of fruit for our labors. Otherwise, we feel like we're wasting our time. Now, depending on the context, this can be really boring and annoying, like if we're in a dead-end job, or what we're doing at work has no use for our project, and we know it. So when I was working in an accounting firm, in my first year, I spent like two weeks being very precise on exchange rate calculations for a particular company's tax return. It was so boring because I'd had to go and research the exact exchange rate for a particular day and transpose it into an Excel spreadsheet and then the next day and transpose it into the Excel spreadsheet and stuff. It was so laborious. And then the next year, you know how with accountants they just go look in the file and do what they did last year, right? The next year, they just canceled that whole process. It wasn't necessary. And I was like, yeah, thanks a lot. Man, that was dull. Now, sometimes if what we're doing has no fruit, if it's got no use, it can be just boring. Sometimes it can be downright depressing. Like those of us who are parents, if we've spent a lot of time and energy bringing up our children and teaching them good values and stuff, and then when they grow up, they just go off the rails and destroy their life. That can, that's not just boring, that's downright discouraging. God also wants fruit. He wants to make a difference. Today's Bible passage is a love song. And what Isaiah is doing is Isaiah is singing a poem to God, the one he loves. That's what verse 1 says. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. Now the interesting thing is that Isaiah the prophet is not singing about how much God loves him. That's what we're used to, isn't it? Oh, I love you baby and my baby loves me and so we get the songs on radio and so on and so on. Here, Isaiah is singing about how much God loves his people, his vineyard. And that's what it says in verse 7. So scoot down to verse 7. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are the garden of his delight. God showed his people how much he loves them by actually doing things in history. So the first couple of verses of this song, of this poem, is a sort of a poetic reflection by the prophet Isaiah on what God did in history. Let's have a look. Verse 1, the second half. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a winepress as well. This is a poetic way of talking about how God brought his people 
the nation of Israel, out from the land of Egypt. See, in, uh, before they came to the promised land, the people of God were not fruitful in the land of Egypt because they were slaves, they were being oppressed. So they did all the work building cities, but the Egyptians lived in them. The people of God did all the work of gardening and farming to, uh, to create food, to grow food, and the Egyptians ate it all. And so the people of God had no fruit. Nothing they did mattered to them. They had no benefit from anything, any of their labors. And that was really oppressive. So God sent Moses and rescued his people in a blaze of glory through the ten plagues and also then took them through the Red Sea and the Red Sea drowned the army of Egypt and so on and so on. And then God took them safely through the desert and brought them to the promised land and planted them in the promised land. That's what it says. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. So the fertile hillside is the land of Palestine, the nation of Israel. But notice, God, verse 2, had to dig up the land and clear it of stones. What that is, it's talking about how when the nation of Israel, when the people of God got to Palestine, it was full of enemies. It was full of people who were against God and were doing all kinds of disgusting things like child sacrifice and sexual immorality and idolatry and stuff like that. So before God could plant his people in the land, he had to clear out all the debris. He had to clear out the stones and the rocks and all the noxious weed and stuff. In the book of Joshua, God tells how he cleared out the nations by giving his people victory over their enemies. So God rescued his people from fruitlessness in Egypt, brought them to the promised land, made, prepared the soil of the promised land by getting rid of the stones and the weeds, and then planted his people and looked after them. So verse, the second half of verse 2, he built a watchtower. Why do you need a watchtower to, look, uh, to watch the plants grow? Well, back when Isaiah was talking, was, was preaching, this made sense. Because back then, you didn't just create a vineyard or a farm. You had to protect that vineyard from wild animals. The wild animals would come and eat up your crops if you didn't keep an eye on the place. You had to protect your vineyard from thieves. People would come and rob your grapes. That's just what happened. So God not only rescued the people from fruitlessness, he established the people, he cleared out the land, and then he looked after them as well. So in the book of Deuteronomy, God talks about how he would protect them from drought and from storms. He would protect them from diseases, from plagues, from enemies. God would watch over his people, his vineyard, forever. In fact, in the book of Deuteronomy, we can see how their situation was exactly reversed. Let me just read for you Deuteronomy 6, 10 to 12. When the Lord your God brings you into the land he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you, a land with large, flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then, when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Now, do you notice how by being taken from Egypt 
to the promised land, their situation is exactly reversed. Back in Egypt, they built the cities, the Egyptians enjoyed living in them. They did all the work, the Egyptians ate the food. What's happening now? They turn up in the land and someone else has built the cities. They just move in, take over the place. They, the land has already got wells and flourishing vineyards and lots of food. They just turn up, sit under the apple tree and wait for the apple to land in their hand and gobble it down. It's a picture of magnificent, abundant, joyous living given to them as a gift from God out of his love. Is this the God you worship? What I mean is this. In this world, we have to earn everything. It's a competitive world. So we study at school to earn the right to go to university. At university, we work real hard to earn good marks so that we can earn a good job. Once we get a good job, we have to defend that job from everyone else who might compete with us and take it over. It's really stressful these days. Many of us aren't. Is, is anyone tenured these days? I don't think so. Everyone's on a contract. And so it's like, well, even if it's a three, four, five-year contract, then it's stressful. I got to you know, make sure my performance is good enough so that I can have a good CV to get the next job or get the contract extended. Our fruit is hard won. We have to earn it. It's different with God. With God, we don't have to do anything. He does all the work. Look again at verse 2. Who did all the work to bring Israel the vine in? He God dug up the land. He cleared it of stones. He planted it with the choicest vines. He built the watchtower. He cut out a wine press. God does everything to establish his people in a place of joy and abundance and does it out of love. What kind of God do you worship? Do you have to earn his love? Or can you just enjoy it? In a few minutes time, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. It's a symbolic feast, a sign of how God gives us joyous, abundant life and just does it for free because he loves us. Now, it's only a symbol. Just a wee little tiny bit of bread and a bit of grape juice. No, grape juice, not even wine. At least the Anglicans use real pork, right? But like... If you want a proper symbolic feast, come to the noodle festival in two weeks' time. More food than we know what to do with. Look, the noodle festival is a better symbol of God's abundant provision. Feasting with him forever in overwhelming joy. So, God rescues his people, clears the land, and then plants them and watches over them securely. Just because he loves them. But God's love isn't like just random. It's purposeful. God wants fruit from his people. The fruit of godliness. Look at the second half of verse 2. What did God look for? He looked for a crop of good grapes. And look at the second half of verse 7. Again, what did he look for? He looked for justice, but saw bloodshed. 
for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. God wanted his people to show the fruit of godliness, which is the fruit of love. And the way they were supposed to do that is by obeying his law. That's why verse 7 talks about justice and righteousness. It's a simple way of talking about God wanted his people to conform their lives according to his law. But that doesn't mean sort of legalism, like, you know, okay, so um, I've got to do this and I'm a good little Christian or I'm a good little Jew. The way Jesus summarized the law is that we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. And that's a really good summary of the law because it makes sense, doesn't it? I remembered what this is. This is a love song, a poem of love by Isaiah to God about how much he loves his people. So what's the right response to love? More love. Respond in love. So love God and love God's people. It's really, really straightforward. That's the response, the fruit that God wanted. However, for those of us who have been coming over the last few weeks, we've seen the stinking, rotten fruit that the people of God brought instead. There you go, there's the rotten fruit. Their worship, it was just outward show. It, they, they didn't really mean it. Just flip back one page, a couple of pages, to Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1, two pages back. Let me read to you again from chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moon sabbaths and convocations. I cannot bear your evil assemblies. Your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When the people of God came together to worship God, it was supposed to make him happy. It was supposed to be a pleasing aroma to him. Like when you're walking past a bakery and you just get this aroma of fresh bread and your mouth starts watering and you just have to go in and buy some really warm, soft, lovely bread. Man, I'm hungry now. We got any supper after this? And no, we just had supper. Man. Okay. So it's, that's how God should have responded to their worship. But instead, it stinks like garbage that's been left out and got wet and the garbage isn't, the collection isn't coming for until next week. And so every time you pass it, your sort of stomach churns for all the wrong reason and you want to puke. That's how God was responding to their fake pretense of worship. Not only were they insulting God, they were using and abusing each other as well. So again, a couple of weeks ago, Matthew Odes showed us from chapter 3 how the men were making themselves rich by robbing the poor and the women were showing off the benefits of that robbery by wearing all the really nice clothing and the jewelry and stuff. In fact, for those of us who have years to hear, there's little hints of this passage in the previous passage. Here, have a look at verses 10 and 11. So Isaiah says, tell the righteous it will be well for them. Why? For they will enjoy the fruit of their deeds. Whereas, verse 11, woe to the wicked. Disaster is upon them. They will be paid back for what their hands have done. God wants fruitfulness. The fruitfulness of righteousness, of caring for people. And in, in fact, in verse 14, 
The Lord enters into judgment against the elders and leaders of his people. It is you who have ruined what? My vineyard. The plunder from the poor is in your houses. So the people, not only, so the people, God, God wanted the people to love him and love each other. The people are spitting in God's face and rubbing each other's faces in the mud. That's the bad fruit. The toxic fruit that insults God and makes him feel sick and makes him angry. Come back to chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5, look at verses 3 and 4. Now, you dwellers in Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? God's anger flows from his love. His anger is his love disappointed. Remember, he just he loved his people. He did all this for them, and he wanted them to respond with the good fruit of love of him and each other. And when they don't, he's going to punish them. Look at verses 5 and 6. Now I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. When God gets mad, he takes away the protection of the vineyard. So he, he, he takes away the hedge, he breaks down the wall, and what happens to a farm or a vineyard when there's no wall around it? The wild animals bust in and gobble everything up. The thieves break in and steal. In fact, God's even going to command the rain to stop falling. And what happens in a drought? Barrenness, dust, death. Again, this actually historically happened. So the first half of the vineyard, the nice bit, was Isaiah looking back at what God had done in history for his people. For Isaiah, this was a warning for the future, that God would one day remove the protection of, from the people, and the enemies and the wild animals would come in and destroy them. For us now, it's in our history. So we can look and see how this happened. 597 B.C., the armies of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. So the Babylonians had been oppressing the kingdom of Judah for many decades. But in 597 BC, they got to Jerusalem and laid siege to the place. And eventually they broke in and they burned down the king's castle. They burned the temple. They smashed all the other important buildings and destroyed the walls around the city. And they took the leaders of the people into exile. We can read about it in 2 Kings chapter 25, 2 Kings chapter 25, or you can just read it in a history book. Nothing that I've just said is like theological. It just happened in real history. What we have here is God's interpretation of those historical events. He took away the protection from his vineyard and the wild animals broke in, the thieves broke in, and trashed the place. 
that means that we are actually in big trouble. Because we, like the people of God back then, we don't naturally, normally produce the good fruit. We naturally, normally produce the bad fruit that makes God mad and draws his barrenness. See, we know how to live God's way, but we don't do it because we think it's too hard. Yeah, yeah, God, I know you love me, but look, up in heaven where you live, maybe everything's all nice and lovey-dovey. But in this world, right, in the real world, it's competitive. It's dangerous. It's violent. I don't have the time to look after weak people, okay? I've got to look after myself. Because if I don't look after myself, who's going to bring home the money to pay the mortgage or pay the school fees? Is that what... If, if I don't have the time to try and help and support weak people. I need to help and support myself and help and support my own people. Do you really want... What? You want me out of a job or something? You want my kids in the street or even worse, in a public school or something? I mean, what? <laughs> in fact... If someone's weak, I'm not going to protect them. I have to take advantage of them. That's what competition is, isn't it? Competition is making the most of my strengths and exploiting everybody else's weaknesses. How else am I going to make budget? And if I don't make budget, somebody else makes budget, bye-bye job. And if someone's nasty to me, I can't forgive them. People will think I'm some spineless person. I'll get depressed. I've got to stand on my rights and protect my dignity. That's how we naturally, instinctively think, isn't it? We know the good fruit that God wants. He wants love, patience, kindness, forgiveness. But it's too hard. It's not realistic. And so we produce the bad fruit instead. Anger, hatred, Strife, greed, pride. And this is why we need Jesus. Jesus is God's ultimate vine. He is God's ultimate person. The fulfillment of everything that the people of God, Israel and Judah, were supposed to be. He in himself was fruitful for God. He always loved God. Obeying God was his meat and drink. In John chapter 4, the, the disciples, they bring food, they're stuffing their face, they say to Jesus, Rabbi, eat something. Jesus says, I have food to eat that you know nothing of. Disciples, typical men, they say, could someone have brought him food? Face palm. I'm sure Jesus did a face palm at that point. And my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Jesus counted obeying God as more important than his daily bread. And Jesus only ever cared for people. He healed people. He was so busy preaching, teaching, and doing good to people that he and his disciples didn't even have time to eat. Jesus stood up for poor, weak people. He, see, he was on the side of women who were being bullied by the religious establishment. He taught truth and righteousness that to this day, even non-Christians recognize that what Jesus taught was good, wholesome teaching. Mahatma Gandhi, a famous Indian peace activist and independence activist, 
He, he refused to believe Jesus died for his sins. He just would not accept that. But man, he loved the Sermon on the Mount. Such good morals. Jesus loved God, loved his people. And so, of course, Jesus, being such a good person, was applauded and got the benefit of all of his righteous life. Yes? No. God did not protect Jesus. God took away Jesus' protection and let Jesus and, and handed Jesus over to his enemies. The Pharisees and teachers of the law arrested him, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish legal body. They convicted him in a sham uh, trial at night. Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, he knew Jesus was innocent, but just like, nah, I can't be bothered, whatever, he's guilty. And in fact, even God became Jesus' enemy. The Father poured out his anger on the Son, on the cross. Jesus became completely barren. You can't be more barren than having God as your enemy. He became completely barren, taking the barrenness that we deserve so that we could be grafted into him and enjoy the fruit that he deserves. We got a preview of this last week from Isaiah 4 verse 2. Just look to the left of your Bibles, Isaiah chapter 4 verse 2. Last week we read, In that day the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land will be the pride and glory of the survivors in Israel. And then Jesus comes along and says, Oops, says Isaiah 4 2, And then Jesus comes along and says, I am the vine. You are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus is God's ultimate vine. Have you put your trust in him? That is the only way to bear fruit for God, to be acceptable, to have God rejoice and have joy in you, and you have joy in him. And if we have put our trust in Jesus, then let's get on with being fruitful. Jesus continues, you did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Let me quickly say what this does not mean. This does not mean that we have to have some sort of discernible, measurable Christian performance. Because we live in such a performance-driven society, when we say, okay, got to go and bear fruit, we think, uh, so does that mean I got to like go out on ev and do evangelism once a month? Or like bring one visitor to church a month and I can get it ticked off? Because that's how work operates and that's how school operates, isn't it? You do your assignments, you get the results. That's not what Jesus means. He's not talking about some sort of measurable performance here. Godliness is much less quantifiable, much less measurable. It's got to do with character, the kind of person we are, the kind of attitudes we have to people. Are we going to be like, you know, forgiving and kind? And it's much more about faithfulness and just keeping going in the difficult times. So perseverance, you know, just keeping on, keeping on especially when there's no discernible result, no fruit, or it feels like there's no fruit. So let's bring forth the fruit of godliness. 
Love, joy, peace, patience. Be kind and generous, especially with idiots. Idiots in the family. Idiots at work. Be different when everyone else is angry and gossiping and backstabbing and so on. Be the person who tries to speak well and be courteous to everyone. And bring forth the fruit. Let's sow the seeds of evangelism. People are moving into this area looking for the good life. So Epping 1, that display center just down the hill. We've got the best life in the universe, eternal life with God. Let's go tell them about it. And invest in your children. Bring, bring forth the fruit of godliness in your children. As Western society becomes less and less Christian, Sundays are going to be more and more like a busy day or a holiday. And so people are going to... Our, our, our children, already there's sport on Sundays. There's birthday parties on Sundays. There's all kinds of fun things to do on Sundays. Why go to, why go to church? It's so much more other fun things to do on a nice day like today. During the week, we could get along to a growth group, a Bible study, or we could go see Vivid Sydney, or we could socialize, or we could do some hobby or study or something like that. So many other things competing for our fruit, as our fruit. What are we going to invest in? What fruit are we going to nurture? In ourselves and in our children. Get along to a growth group. Study the book of Isaiah. Enjoy the dynamism of this wonderful, picturesque book. Okay, let me finish up. God is a farmer. He loves us enough to want us to be fruitful. He grafts us into his son Jesus. Have you put your trust in Jesus? Have you been plugged into Jesus, remaining in him, like it says in John 15? If we have, then let's be fruitful for Jesus. Living for him, you know, being godly, telling others about him, and investing in our children and in ourselves. Let's pray. Thank you, Father God, that you give us the privilege of living for you, of being fruitful for you. Thank you for your Son, the one true vine. We, trust, we, we put our trust in him afresh. We pray that you would graft us into him. And we ask that you will make us fruitful for him. Teach us your ways that we would live your ways in a world that doesn't give a hoot about you. Use us to tell others about you. And please, give us the discipline to prioritize you and meeting with you and your people, especially in our busy lives these days. Amen.